Before we start, a quick note. Today's episode touches on sexual assault and an attempted suicide. Exact time codes are in the description if you prefer to skip that section. Please know you're not alone and don't be afraid to ask for help. Welcome to Amplified, a podcast featuring conversations with prominent diverse voices in sports and sports media, brought to you by Venezia FC. I'm your host, Megan Reyes, and making sports a more equal and inclusive space is a personal passion of mine. If you're also in the sports media industry, or if you're a fan, you probably already know a little bit about my guests, what they do on the job, and how they got their start. So I'm skipping the superficial questions. Instead, I want to learn about their upbringings, how they've managed mental health and the idea of belonging, and their identity outside of the industry. On this episode, we're joined by Kavitha Davidson, sports and culture writer at The Athletic and co-author of Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back. She can also be seen on HBO's Real Sports with Bryant Gumbel. Kavitha and I dive deep into our childhoods and share stories of our first-generation experience. We also talk about how we manage anxiety and depression. If there's anything you'll learn from this episode, it's that you're not alone in whatever you're feeling through. Let's get Kavitha's story amplified. Kavitha, thank you for joining me today and thank you for joining the show. How are you? I'm doing well, Megan. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, as a lot of people know on the show, we don't necessarily talk so much about our careers in sports. A lot of us know one another. We know our jobs and what we do. But if you don't mind just kicking us off by briefly sharing how you became a sports writer. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, don't need to go into the whole origin story of how I became a sports fan. But basically, um, <laughs> you know, I, I grew up in New York. I took a, a, a class trip to Yankee Stadium and fell in love with it. And, you know, I was a daughter of immigrants who didn't really get sports. And it was a way for me to connect with my classmates, honestly. And, you know, when I kind of love something, I, I fall down the rabbit hole with it. So in high school, I decided I wanted to be a sports writer. Um, I was the sports editor of my college paper at Columbia. And uh, my first real sports writing job was at Bloomberg covering sports and business. Um, and then from Bloomberg, I went to ESPN and then The Athletic, where I am now. And how we know each other. <laughs> so wait, you fell in love with sports because of the Yankees? Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. So, I mean, my parents came here from India in 1981 and my mom got really into boxing and the Bernard King Knicks. You know, it was a magical time, the 80s in 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 New York. But boxing apparently was because Muhammad Ali did a tour of India in the 1960s when she was in her teens and went to her hometown. And she remembered that. And that was a story that I didn't hear until years after I'd started telling this story. Um, but, you know, so so I started watching the Knicks. My mom really fell in love with Patrick Ewing then. Um, but as you know, as I kind of said, as as immigrants paying money to go watch sports was a really foreign thing, um, let alone something like baseball, which was completely off my parents' purview. So I had a, a, a principal of my elementary school who was a huge Yankees fan um, that in 1996, uh, we took a class trip uh, for the home opener to Yankee Stadium. And there was this feeling in the stadium that I'll never forget. And, you know, old the old Yankee Stadium in particular the acoustics of it made this sound that you could vis you could feel the sound in the pit of your stomach. Um, and I have a relatively addictive personality. So I tell people that my Same. pursuit of this career has been the pursuit of that sound basically ever since. 
That's so interesting. So I also, my parents are immigrants, came from the Philippines, and my dad and brother are big baseball fans, um, particularly they're big Yankees fans. So the reason being is my dad shared, and I actually totally forgot about this memory until you said something. I think sometime later, maybe when I was in high school, either I asked or the conversation got brought up of why they're Yankees fans. And my dad shared, well, you know, growing up in the Philippines, there weren't many games that we got and the games we got were Yankees games. And so now now I'm a Yankees fan. And uh, it is so interesting to hear that perspective of, I think, I can't speak for everyone, but maybe our parents, depending on when they came here, whatever team was it at the time is probably the team they picked because they didn't have that other exposure uh, to, to other markets and teams wherever they were growing up. Yeah, totally. And there, there's absolutely, there's a cultural assimilation aspect there. Um, you know, my mom is actually super into baseball now. Like we go for Mother's Day. My dad really oh. doesn't care that much, but, um, <laughs> but it, it is, it is super interesting how, how much she's picked it up. And, and I know part of that is because I love it so much and it's something to bond with me over. But I also do wonder, you know, how universal these things can be, even when you are like the other, when you are the immigrant. Um, and it's, it's always been kind of interesting to see my parents embrace sports in that way. Mine have two. We were a sports family. It's actually one of the reasons that I love it. Again, baseball was big in our family. My brother played in high school, college, coached. And now that he's a dad of his own, coaches his daughter's softball team. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think like my parents' interest in other sports, we weren't basketball family. But when I started working for the Warriors, they became the biggest NBA fans. Sure. Again, you know, the assimilation. And Again, of course, not a terrible team to have to root for. You exactly. Know? <laughs> the pride of like, oh, my daughter works there and now we can bond over it and the, the things to have conversations around. But you did bring up something that I really wanted to spend some time talking about is being first generation. Your parents from India, my parents from the Philippines. As I've been going through therapy, and I share this with you, talking more with my friends in my close circle about the first generation experience, it's something that's been kind of difficult to manage, especially in my formative years of understanding the things, my tendencies and the things that make me tick are probably first generation mindset that I learned early on. What have been some of your experiences around being first generation. I know for you, you grew up in New York where it's a little bit more of a cultural melting pot. I grew up in a very white community, but mm -hmm. curious to hear what your experiences have been. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I feel, I feel completely opposite ends of the spectrums at the same time about this because on the one hand, yes, like, I mean, I, I'm the biggest New York elitist um, when it comes to the fact that we do have the most diversity. And I do think that we benefit very greatly from growing up with the kind of diversity that we do. Um, on the other hand, you know, I was a scholarship kid at an Episcopalian school on the Upper West Side. I was the only non-Black person of color um, in my 25. I think we had two homerooms and there were 12 people in each class. You know what I mean? Um, so in the middle of this incredibly diverse melting pot, I was in one of the whitest, richest spaces. Um, and it was extremely difficult for me. You know, I, I think that I was confronted with it so front on and, you know, I've been in therapy since I was very young. So I've definitely talked about being bullied and all of that, but I don't think that, you know, I think that there's a coping strategy that a lot of us, particularly API immigrants use, um, but other immigrants do as well, where we just try to assimilate as quickly as possible. Um, you know, sometimes we adopt, you know, more American names. We change the way we speak, uh, the intonation, all of that. And I think that I either subconsciously or, or kind of actively really tried to not be identified as the Indian kid, you know, 
um, and really kind of adopt a lot more, I guess, Americanness, whatever that means. At the same time, there's some really common and shared experiences in that immigrant experience. I remember when I first read and then the show premiered fresh off the boat and there's, you know, the scene in the cafeteria where he's bringing his mom's leftovers to uh, to lunch and it's the smelly lunches thing. And I remember that extremely vividly. I think a lot of kids, um, especially a lot of brown kids, but I think a lot of kids would, would identify with that. And then there's a scene after and I did exactly this um, where he takes his mom to the grocery store and it's that aisle with like the craft mac and cheese and the rice aroni and you know the shit that your parents would never actually make for you because they've got frankly more pride in their food than making some instant ramen um and and I begged my mom to to make me rice aroni because I didn't want my lunches to smell and she was first of all she was kind of appalled at the quality of the food I was asking for um and then she was like well I mean this is so much easier than what I make for you so yeah I'll do that and so so yeah so I think that all of that to say like I I don't think that I was necessarily directly made to feel ashamed of my immigrant status, but I was always extremely aware of it. Um, And then I also remember being the only non-Black person of color being kind of told by my classmates that you're either Black or white and you kind of have to pick one. And, you know, we're young and and it was the 90s and people, you know, didn't really have a lot of vocabulary and how to talk to kids about race um, then, at least. Um, I don't know if we do now, but... But, you know, and I, I remember I remember being told that like pretty vividly. Um, so I, I, th- I think I've always kind of felt a little bit caught in the middle in some ways. Then the other side of that is, of course, you know, as as Asian Americans, we are the mi- the model minority. You I know, was, my the reason mm-hmm. I, I my parents came to this country is because my mom got a Ph.D. in biochemistry and got a postdoctoral fellowship at Columbia. So, um, you know, she didn't make a lot of money at all doing that. But obviously I had privilege to come from two very educated parents, um, which, you know, led to me being as educated as I am. So, you know, you're you're taught to be confronted with your with your ethnicity, with your immigrants status with the otherism of that. But you're also taught that you shouldn't be complaining about being othered because you've got the better end of the stick. And it's really hard to reconcile all of those things. And I think I I just didn't. I think I didn't confront it until maybe college. So that relates so much in my heart. Like I everything you said really resonates because it's the same. You know, my parents came here I think early, my brother was born in 81, so late 70s, around the time your parents probably did. Um, And my dad came here to get his master's, got his PhD. And the reason that we ended up in Idaho where I grew up is because my dad got his first teaching job there. So I, again, I I grew up in a very white, non-diverse community and kind of subconsciously and totally unbeknownst to me, I just totally assimilated to that life. And it wasn't until I moved to the Bay Area seven years ago, where there's a lot more diversity here, and also a lot more Filipinos, that I realized I'm not very attuned or in touch with my Filipino roots. Um, And I know with my grandparents, so my dad's side of the family is still in the Philippines, and I've unfortunately never met them. I haven't Mm. met them yet. And when we would talk on the phone for birthdays or Christmas, they would always be shy and timid to talk to me because I sounded too American. Mm -hmm. And I never knew growing up, I was like, I don't know what that means. I sound like I also don't know how else to talk. Yeah, Yeah, this is, (laughs) am I speaking too fast? I know I say like a lot, but what does that mean? And then I would be either told I'm too American or I'm, you know, I'm the Asian girl because I was, 
I think the one of the only Asian girls growing up. And mm-hmm. it just didn't make sense to me because I didn't have that perspective because I was the only one like myself growing up. And then yeah. fast forward coming here. And then I have a lot of now best friends that are also Filipino and also first generation. And I'm realizing, wow, I don't speak Tagalog. I don't speak the language. I don't understand some of these cultural nuances that you're talking about in your big families. I also don't understand because I just didn't have that perspective growing up. And to your point, I'm actually just now reconciling it. And it's difficult to not really know it's probably not the right term to use here, but sometimes I'm like, I don't know which way I'm supposed to lean. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, I, yeah, everything you said resonated. First of all, the language, I don't speak Tamil, which is what my parents speak. And I mean, frankly, that was by design. They did not teach me. They didn't speak it in front of me. Frank, like they have said this to me. It's because they wanted to be able to talk about things in front of me that I wouldn't understand. So, um, so I never learned the language. Um, all of our family, except for one set of cousins is also over there. I am, I have been to India a couple of times, so I have met, um, a lot of our family, but, um, you know, like I, I never met my mom's mom who died before I was born. My dad's dad died before I was born. I met my I bet both my other two grandparents once probably um, before they they both passed away as well. Um, and it, it's hard. You know, I think a very common part of the immigrant experience is feeling like you don't have roots, um, you know, and nobody in America really has roots, frankly, like unless like literally like there's the Mayflower Americans. And then that's kind of that's kind of it other than the actual indigenous people of this country. Um, but, you know, not having not having the grandparent experience and holidays and and that kind of thing has always been difficult. Um, But to your point, you know, growing up in a city as diverse as New York, I also just didn't have a ton of Indian friends growing up. I I didn't, like I said, I didn't go to school with any other Indian kids. Um, And then even like from like my parents, friends, uh, kids, like we didn't, we didn't really hang out that much. And, um, and the other, the other like kind of like kind of granular aspect of being an Indian immigrant is my parents are Christian. Um, and so much of Indian culture and so many of the holidays and the festivals are Hindu festivals and they're beautiful, um, but they're just not things that we would have participated in because my parents go to church. Right. So um, so I, I have kind of in the last few years, you know, met more Indian kids and, and tried to cultivate some of those relationships because I didn't have that growing up um, and, you know, participated in holy and like those those festivals that are super fun. And I'm mad that, you know, Christian holidays are super boring in comparison. But um, but, you know, I. It is difficult, I think, to feel like you don't have a singular identity, but you, you know, you also don't need to have a singular identity. That's so much of what being an American means. Right. Um, And, you know, my parents will always say that, you know, at this point, they've lived in America much longer than they they lived in India, um, even though they grew up there. And, you know, they'll say that they're Americans 100 percent. And and it's just one of those things where, you know, you do feel like. Sometimes, I mean, when you're talking to your grandparents on the phone and they say you sound too American. Yeah. I mean, I remember in high school, I went to a high school that was super diverse. We were, well, 70 something percent Asian. I went to Stuyvesant. Um, and, uh, and, and there were clicks and clicks of Indian kids who only hung out with other Indian kids. And I, I, I didn't want to be like that. And, and I realized how much judgment I passed on them because I was internalizing what I assumed 
particularly white society was judging them for, for being insular and for only hanging out with each other. And, you know, for only being, I remember interviewing Vicky Ng um, for a piece about anti-API violence. And she was like, you know, we, we grew up as we're now journalists, but we grew up thinking, you know, we're, we're only going to be doctors and engineers and lawyers. Right. And, and so I, I remember in high school kind of rejecting all of those trappings that I assume to be the stereotypical Indian immigrant kid experience. And I, I do remember like some, some kids that I went to high school with me basically saying, oh, you're so white or, you know, you, you, you like, you're too good to hang out with us. And it was like, well, I, I kind of just want to watch baseball. <laughs> like, you yeah. know? Um, so like, I just want to be me. <laughs> I just want to be me. And I don't know, you know, I think in high school, so you don't know what that means, but um, you know, when you, when you're trying to reject identities that are placed on you while formulating your own, that's super difficult. And that's something that absolutely takes years to unpack. Yeah. So it's interesting when you're talking about speaking the language, because again, I don't speak Tagalog and I also don't understand it. Mm. And uh, similarly, but a little bit different, I, I think the story goes that my parents tried to teach me, but I wasn't interested. And so now I'm kind of upset because I'm like, you should have just made me learn because my brother understands. He just doesn't speak it. He's not comfortable speaking it, but he can understand. So I only understand bits, pieces and a few phrases. So it kind of worked out well that growing up, similar to you, if they wanted to talk about something they didn't want me to know, they would just start speaking in Tagalog at the dinner table. And my brother's a lot older than me. He's 10 years older than me. So he was out of the house when I was eight, went to college. So, so much of growing up, you know, family time at the dinner table, if they wanted to start talking about something they didn't think I should know, they'd start speaking in Tagalog and I'd sit there like, this is cool. It's exactly the same thing. My sister's 11 years older than me and she was three when they came to this country and she understands. um, She can speak she can speak when she drinks, um, like a little <laughs> bit, um, but she understands. So it's exactly the same thing where my parents will start blah, 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 like talking about something that they don't want me to understand. And she'll completely she'll completely understand everything. And ugh, older, older siblings, man. Right. We'll be in like big family settings and everyone will start laughing. And I'm like, ha, 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 awkwardly laughing <laughs> and just really upset that it's I don't that know moment what's going where ev- like Literally everyone is speaking a language and you're like. I'm here too. And all of you speak English. Come on. They forget. I think a lot of people just forget. Oh, Megan, you don't understand. Do you? No. (laughs) And it is also, I mean, I I think it's similar in the Philippines where like in India, English is taught alongside whatever your native language is. So it's not, it's not English as a second language. It's, it's basically your native language as well, but there is a comfort and a familiarity with, with speaking Tamil for my parents, um, my mom more than my dad, but, um, that, that it just, it happens so naturally. And, and I kind of have to remind them, Hey, Hey, <laughs> I'm here too. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So you bring up the model minority, which is, uh, I, I kind of laughed because it was something I was going to bring up. I know it's something I struggle with again, was taught to not ruffle feathers, you know, not complain, not make too much of a big deal. And I am still struggling with that a little bit because I'm definitely a lot more outspoken, on social media, just about issues, not to say that maybe my my family or others wouldn't agree. They just wouldn't 
speak on it because they didn't want to cause a problem. Mm -hmm. So even sometimes I get uncomfortable. Like if I'm going to post something and call out an entity or call out a person or call out why something is absolutely bullshit on Twitter, even I get kind of uncomfortable. Like, should I have done that? Was that, you know, was that doing too much? And to your point, it takes so long to reconcile and come to terms with accepting this is just who I am. I can be a first generation Filipino. My parents can be immigrants and I can still be outspoken and not have to fall into the model minority mindset. Multiple truths can be held here. It's just very difficult. And to your point, we try and reject all these different identities. And sometimes while it's difficult to have to come to terms with, it is really just knowing like it's okay to be multiple different versions of yourself. Like you don't have to be one identity. I don't have to be Filipino Megan that doesn't assimilate with American Megan or vice versa. Like I can just be both. And that's more on, I think teaching others that aren't like us, like there's no such thing as being too American or or too Filipino. Like this is just who I am. This is how I grew up. And this is my first generation experience. Yeah, absolutely. And and everyone's first generation experience is different. Again, Mm -hmm. everyone's American experience is different. That's the beauty of the promise of this country. Um, And yeah, I mean, the the outspoken thing has always been interesting because I have been loud since I was born, basically. Um, Same. You know, I, I have I have always had an issue accepting authority. I have always kind of spoken my mind. Same. My parents like to tell this story about how um, I, I was this is how New York City works. I was on an interview for kindergarten um, and uh, it was a very, very fancy kindergarten that I would have had to get a scholarship for. But, um, you know, I I. I was a, a I was a smart kid. I skipped a couple of grades. So so there was a chance that I could get um, a scholarship. And uh, we did the tour of the of the school and the whole interview process and everything. And the entire time, I don't remember this because I was four, but my parents <laughs> remember this very vividly. They're like the entire time you like not sneering, but you kind of knew something was like not right. Apparently, the the person doing the interviewing was this like gigantic snob and kept making these like snide comments about like my parents like clothes or like the neighborhood that we lived in and, you know, where they came from and that kind of thing, just like really, you know, like anti like classist and racist and immigrant stuff. Um, and, and it came to the end of the interview and like, obviously like they, they were going to accept me into the school. And I don't remember, like, I can't remember the part of the story where like she said something outright and then I spat in her face. <laughs> like literally? I literally spat in her face. <laughs> Four-year-old Kavitha apparently spat in this poor woman's face um, because she, because I re- apparently just rejected all of the, the classism and racism that she was directing toward my parents. So uh, needless to say, I did not get into that school, but that <laughs> kind of lays the foundation of, of me not conforming to this kind of stereotype of like the mousy, quiet put your head down Indian kid. Um, and you know, like I said, I went to an Episcopalian school and I always questioned, um, I always questioned religious authority there. Um, I was very lucky that we were actually taught, um, religious studies. So we were academically taught other religions, which I think is really important to understanding the world. Um, and then, you know, I've always been pretty outspoken about sexism and racism and, and homophobia and things like that. And I don't know if my parents really knew what to do with it at first because they, you know, and, and both of them have extremely strong opinions about things. My dad works in criminal justice reform. My mom, you know, is a, you know, was a Indian PhD scientist in the 1970s. Like, you know, all of like both of them are progressive and pioneers in their own ways. But I think at first they didn't really know what to do with just the way that I, I 
speak. And obviously I have a command of the language and all of that in a, in a way that, that, um, you know, most people don't necessarily have. And then, um, they just came to really kind of embrace it. <laughs> like, like they, 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 I, I, I would be maybe seven or eight years old and just like be spouting off shit at the, at the dinner table. And they would kind of, my dad would whip out the video camera and he would find it super amusing. So, um, you know, it, it has always kind of been interesting to see how the, like the juxtaposition of that part of the expectation has played out, um, with, with the reality of the fact that I don't fit into that kind of box or stereotype. I'm glad you didn't get into that kindergarten. Uh, <laughs> Me too. <laughs> so that's actually probably my new favorite story. Um, that is amazing. You knew you were very self-aware at that time. I, that you know I what? don't like I how promise, you're treating my parents. Yes. And now I promise that I have, I have obviously confronted, been confronted with racism since then. And I promise I've dealt with it in a much more adult way than spitting in somebody's face. So <laughs> if push comes to shove though. Right. <laughs> Maybe not above it a little bit. Um, so, you know, on, <laughs> while we're talking first generation and just everyone's experience, of course, being different, my experience personally has included the need to feel perfect. I think subconsciously I knew the sacrifices my parents made and the life that they created for my brother and I here. And therefore, I need to be the perfect kid. And some of that might be the model minority, the quiet, not outspoken, doesn't create trouble girl. That's Megan. And on top of that, it's I think similarly, I didn't become a nurse as stereotypical as that is like a doctor, a nurse or the other professions that a lot of uh, people stereotype Filipinos to have. And I wanted to work in sports, for goodness sake. Like, <laughs> what was that? It actually took a really long time for me to convince my parents, like, I can make a career out of this. And they were on board because of my passion, but they definitely were like, are you sure you don't want to do marketing at, you know, a, a corporate company or whatever it may be. But because of that, I think I also took on the concept of perfectionism of let me show that I can make a career doing something a little bit non-traditional. Uh, can you relate to perfectionism at all? Do you have experiences 100%. on that? I mean, especially what you said at the top about being so like hyper aware of how much your parents have sacrificed to give you these opportunities. And, you know, like I, my, my first job at Bloomberg, I made more money than my mom ever made as a neuropathologist PhD at an Ivy League research university. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, and and part of that is sexism. That's a whole other thing. Science is is unforgiving to um, immigrant brown women. But um, but it it really did highlight for me like she worked so hard um, and started from scratch. My mom grew up very privileged. Her mom was a doctor in in India. Um, and she started from scratch when she came here, you know, completely. Um, and, and it really has underscored, you know, what, what they sacrificed all of that for was to give, to give me this oppor these opportunities to give my sister, these opportunities as well. Um, along with that definitely comes, I mean, like the, the, helicopter parent stereotype is definitely extremely true as well. You know, I, I never got below an A minus in, in any class 
up until college, um, until second term senior year of high school, I got a B plus. I'd already gotten into Columbia um, and I brought it home and my dad made a parent teacher appointment with my history, with my AP history teacher, (laughs) because he thought I was letting everything slip away. Um, And that teacher is actually still like, I'm still friends with him and his wife. And and every time I do something or reach another career milestone, he posts on my Facebook or he texts my dad or something. And he's like, do you remember when you made that little appointment with me and I told you that she's going to be perfectly fine. Um, yeah, but yeah, I mean, and you know, on top of that, you know, the goal of getting into the best universities that you can for, you know, the, the most scholarship, because obviously who can afford, you know, an Ivy league university without a scholarship, um, and, and what it takes to get into that. So, you know, starting again, like in New York, like our school system is super segregated. So our path was you, you take a test, you do really well in it and you get into this high school and then you, you do really well in school. You do all of the extracurriculars, not the sports extracurriculars, though, because, you know, my parents didn't think those would get me into college. Um, but, you know, you, you play three instruments, but you don't just play three instruments. You play three instruments good enough that you can get into Juilliard on two of them. Um, and then, you know, like and, and it's just it's all about resume building and it's all about getting you to this point so that all of those sacrifices do pay off. And it's a it's a shit ton of pressure, man. <laughs> like, you know, and, and it's, it's just a lot for everyone, for anyone to deal with. But at the same time, I have come to be a lot more forgiving about where that comes from because I do recognize the sacrifice. And I also recognize, frankly, I recognize the privilege, you know, that I, I first of all, grew up in a two parent household, which is a privilege in itself. Um, and both of my parents had um, above master's degrees obviously a privilege, didn't translate to money, but you know, um, and, and, and all of that. And then, you know, when we talk about the kind of stereotypical, um, professions that, that, that Asian Americans tend to go into and that kind of the expectation is set from the parents as well. I I, I've come to realize that's because that's, those are the most stable from an income perspective, professions, if you know, and, and, and there's more of a, there's a very set track, right? Like if you, if you become a doctor, you know, you know, you're going to go four years of medical school, you're going to do an internship and a residency, and you're going to start off with a certain starting salary, and you're going to make a good amount of money for the rest of your life. Like that's a set track. And it's a stability that immigrants seek and that immigrants came to this country to have and to secure for their kids and for the next generations. Um, so part of me, like what part of me does sometimes feel like, huh, like I really, like I was really good at math. I could have absolutely just gone into, you know, finance or something and, and, you know, been probably way less of a a stress for my parents to worry about my future in a journalism industry that is ever shrinking. Um, but, you know, and I, I do feel a little bit of a pang of guilt from time to time that I, I, you know, I did something, I guess selfish is the word that I, I wanted to do something with the rest of my life that I genuinely love and that would make me happy. And it is a little, it's selfish from the immigrant perspective. It's also just selfish because most people aren't afforded that privilege. Most people don't work in, in jobs that they love. They work, they work to live. They don't live to work. And I'm extremely lucky to say that even on the hardest days and as long hours as you can sometimes pull in, in this job, I love every minute of it. Um, but it, it, it came because of, you know, the, the struggle and the sacrifice of my parents and that search for perfectionism. Because I don't know if, you know, in, in an industry like the one that, that you and I are in, if, if you make it, if you don't strive for that kind of perfectionism, especially, frankly, looking like you and I. Yeah, 100%. I think it, it's compounded 
with what mm-hmm. we were raised. Like you said, the resume building oof, hit so close <laughs> to home because it was, I didn't play sports, athletic, just not the right just size. Like, what? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> it just wasn't for me. Um, but I was, I danced ballet, mm. jazz, hip hop. It was food bank. It was school. It was all of these things uh, to build the resume. And I know that was to, you know, so I could get into college and get an education and have a good career. Not to say that anything I haven't done since they aren't proud of, because I know they're extremely proud of. But when you have that go, go, go chasing for the next piece of perfection mentality, when you graduate college and you get that job and now we're in a more stable career in sports for you journalism <laughs> a lot of question marks there but sure. when we have our career figured out let's go with it we, we got to believe it man <laughs> yeah when we have our career figured out it, i think we still have that like inner child of what else can i do to make my resume look good or what else can i do to to learn more because it's just something we had ingrained from the start and i know for in some ways that actually started to create some anxiety for me because there are times when i feel like i'm being lazy Mm-hmm. When I'm not being lazy, it's just kind of goes against maybe what we were doing as children. So my anxiety stems from a lot of different things. And I know that you've been vocal on social about some of the, your experiences with anxiety. I was wondering if you'd be willing to share and discuss what that's looked like for you and how you manage it. Yeah. I mean, I think that especially thinking about the strive for perfection and high school And, you know, I I don't say I never got below an A minus to like blow smoke up my own ass. I say that because I was fucking terrified every time I took a test, even though I knew that I was smart enough to do well in it. But I was fucking terrified every time I I had to get graded on something because I knew that less than an A was not acceptable. Um, And maybe that's why I have test anxiety. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I never thought of that. Well, I mean, it, it's it's a real thing. And funnily enough, you know, I the, the schools that I've gone to are so based off of standardized testing that I'm actually an extremely good test taker. I've taken I've taken grad level tests that I have no business taking. And I'm just I, it's a skill that I have. But but it but. I don't think that we had the language for it back then. We didn't talk about anxiety in mm-hmm. the early aughts. Um, but thinking about how I would feel before a test like that, I would get a panic attack. That's exactly what that was. Um, and, and now, now I, I can recognize and I can identify that, um, anxiety. I mean, I, my, I, I haven't, I don't necessarily suffer from regular anxiety unless there is a trigger and that trigger, like you said, can either be feeling like you're not doing enough, um, feeling like you're lazy. You see someone else get an opportunity that you're like, am I not doing, you know, am I not doing enough to have the same opportunities or, or something like that? Um, but, you know, I think I've also like I've also suffered from chronic depression, which I've been I've been diagnosed with. And um, and the way that depression manifests is so like for me, it doesn't happen um, in a compound way with anxiety. For me, I, I get a kind of depression that they kind of call hibernation where, you know, you, like your whole body shuts down basically. And you 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 kind of eat and you sleep <laughs> like that's all that you do, right? basically. Um, and. And then that makes me feel super guilty because you can't pull yourself out of that like easily, right? You can rationalize and intellectualize and you can tell yourself, this is what you are going through. You have been diagnosed. This, you know, this is how you got out of it last time. But then if it doesn't work, if you're not able to get out of it, it just makes it worse, right? It's a, it's a, it's an ever compounding feeling there. So, um, yeah, it's, it, it, it's, 
it's a process, frankly. I think it's a lifelong process. I don't think you ever fully um, get out of it. And I I do think that, I mean, I think that everybody should be in therapy, first of all. Like, I think even, yes. quote unquote, the most well-adjusted people should be in therapy because it's just a really good thing to have a, a, a relatively objective person um, to talk to once a week um, yeah. and and just try and assess some of the things in your life. But, you know, I I... It's it's a constant struggle. And I think that one of the ways that I've been able to cope and frankly, the the pandemic was really hard for me. It was hard for everybody. But I knew going into the shutdown, the way that my depression tends to manifest is literally staying at home and not doing anything. Mm -hmm. And now Mm -hmm. we were under government mandate to do exactly that. So I was very worried. And I was also by myself in LA at the time. I was very worried that the depression on top of actual COVID depression and anxiety about people dying around you and, you know, seeing my loved ones going through what they were going through, especially in New York in those early days. um, You know, I was very worried about what that would do um, about how that would trigger my depression. And I, I did all kinds, you know, I did like adult paint by numbers and all kinds of things to try and, to try and save that off. And it was, I mean, listen, (laughs) did you try the diamond painting? Because that was a whole new thing that I discovered where you literally have these little rhinestones, um, and like a glue pen. My nieces did them. them. (laughs) It was a little bit too meticulous for me, but the way my anxiety is set up, I know it was supposed to help with anxiety. Mm -mm. (laughs) That's what they, well, I mean, fair enough because everyone goes through this differently, but that's the reason I, I, for, I started, it was exactly because people were like, it forces you to concentrate and to take your time with all that. And I do not have the patience <laughs> usually for that shit. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, it was, it was a really troubling time, but I think that one of the things that I've learned from being in therapy, as long as I have been, um, and I also, you know, I, I was sexually assaulted in college and I was diagnosed with PTSD. Um, so I've, you know, I've kind of gone through some of the, the ringer of mental health diagnoses. Um, but one of the things that I've learned is that being kinder to yourself about not being able to pull yourself out of it is the only way that you're actually going to get out of it. And everybody is different. Everyone has different coping mechanisms. I don't have great coping mechanisms. It's something that I've been working on um, for my whole life. But um, but yeah, and I think that it's just been so important to be able to talk about these issues. Like podcasts, like the ones that you're doing are so important. Um, And the fact that we're having the conversation, that we're using words like depression and anxiety and panic attacks and PTSD, um, and that, you know, we have, and that we're kind of getting over the stigma that that is weakness, that that also means you can't be functional, that that means you can't be productive, um, you know, is, is really, it's, it's really important in going forward here. Um, and for me, you know, so much of my journey has been, um, being able to talk about my depression, about my assault, um, publicly being able to write about it and having people identify with it. You know, I think that we're very lucky in public facing professions to get, so much validation. I mean, for all the trolls that we deal with, we can also get so much validation back from people who are just thankful for the work sometimes. And that's, that's, that's a, honestly, that's a fantastic gift that we, that we have. Um, and that, you know, I, I really do, I, I cherish being able to kind of share those experiences and have people share theirs back. Yeah. And thank you for sharing yours and finding this a safe space to share that. I think to, to your point, having, the hope is that for myself, for you, and for the other guests on this show, names and faces that people know, and then to see and hear them relate to these mental health struggles. I use that word a little loosely because I don't want it to be, I don't like that it can sound 
like that is something that defines us. Um, Mm -hmm. But to your point that a lot of people that are extremely high functioning, high performing, successful people have to talk them out of talk themselves out of anxiety attacks, panic attacks, talk themselves out of depression. My depression is compounded with anxiety. So that's, that's how I can start to get depressed is then because to your point, I'm not kind to myself. Point Mm. of this being is that I think if there's anything somebody should learn coming from this show or even this episode is yeah, kindness to yourself because where I can get myself into a spiral and a rabbit hole it's like, why are you, why are you having this anxious thought? Why, you know, the, you know, your truths or, you know, that it, this is an irrational thought or feeling, why are you having it? And then it spirals into anxiety and then it spirals into depression when really it could have been mitigated from the beginning if I was nice mm-hmm. to myself. Well, and the spiral is so, it's so important to acknowledge the spiral because it happens to, it happens to all of us in, in obviously different ways. Um, but yeah, I mean, to your point, there were like, it, uh, it took me, Oh, how long it took me five years to truly confront my PTSD. I was, you know, I, I, I was assaulted freshman year of college. I, after sophomore year of college took medical leave to deal with the PTSD because it had just kind of all came to a head. Um, and I probably should have like immediately after I was assaulted, taken some time off and I didn't, um, you know, that was how I coped. Um, and, and I, for the next five, like good five years, probably, um, you know, maintained a bunch of internships, but I wasn't able to go back to school for those, for those years. I I felt dumb. I felt unfulfilled. I felt unproductive. You know, I, I, you know, the top of the show, I had been this like wunderkind of so much academic promise and everything. And then suddenly this thing happened to me and I wasn't able to perform at the level that I had for the first 19, 17 years of my life. Um, And I really did think, you know, I had all of these huge dreams and I had all of these huge ambitions. And I had, I had everything kind of set up to achieve all of those things. And I, I, I thought for years that, that I had ruined everything or that, you know, nothing was salvageable and that I had, you know, I had hit rock bottom and, and all like whatever cliche you want to throw out there. I really didn't think anything could get better. And when you're in the middle of it and when it's, you know, everyone takes a different amount of time for, for, you know, to get over, um, or to deal with their own mental health issues. But, you know, when you're, like right in the middle of it, you have no idea how long you've been flailing, how long, how long you have left in you to do so. Um, and you know, it, it really can seem so hopeless, uh, for, for many, many ways, many reasons. And I think that I'm a huge testament to the fact that it's not like, you know, I didn't end up graduating college and I, you know, recovered from a suicide attempt because I thought things were that bad. And, you know, three years after that, after, after the suicide attempt, I got the job essentially that would change my entire life and put me on the path to becoming a sports writer and to achieving all of those things I'd wanted to achieve. And I just, you know, I, I'm extremely grateful for where I am right now and for what I have been able to do um, and for the platform that I have because of it, frankly. Um, 
but I, I look back on that and I think, you know, I thought that my life was going to follow a very set path, a very regimented path, um, you know, along those lines of the immigrant having the regimented path kind of set for you. And when I didn't go according to that plan, I didn't think there was any future. I didn't think there was any hope. And now I look back and I'm like, no, you know, I still got to where I wanted to go. I just took a really circuitous route to get there. And so I think it is it's re, it is really important to have these conversations to emphasize that no matter how deep in anxiety or depression you think you are, as cliche as it is, it can always get better. And even mm-hmm. though it's exhausting and it can take years. It is very tiring. I have those conversations with myself sometimes where you, sometimes you're like, you know what? It's so much easier just to think anxiously and it's so much easier to just regress back to what I knew. But then you have to also have that conversation of is that, you know, is that good for me? It's not. Mm-hmm. So you, you need to do the work. But yes, it is very tiring. And if you were to, you know, go back and tell 17, 18 year old Kavitha something, what would you tell yourself now having made it through and probably what sounds like a really dark and difficult time for you to where you are now? What would you tell yourself? Yeah, um, I would. Well, first, I would tell her to not try to finish, to, to take time off, (laughs) um, take care of yourself, to take care of yourself. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I took three weeks off of school and then went right back and took fine and took my finals. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, so I would tell, I would tell her to not do that. I would also tell her, um, you know, I would, I would, I would probably just prepare her for the fact that her life's not going to go according to plan necessarily, but it's still going to end up pretty fucking great. So, um, not to, you know, not to be, um, not, not to think that things are, are hopeless, even when they seem like they are. Um, and to, you know, and to be a little bit more probably honest. I think that something happens when you, when you aren't equipped with the language or just the knowledge of how your own mental health issues can manifest, you, you don't talk about them to anyone else. So you'd either recognize the signs or the symptoms, um, and don't say anything, or you just don't recognize them at all. And thinking back on it, I can think of tons of times when, you know, instead of like going out, I would just stay in my dorm room or something. And, and I would, I would tell, I would tell 17 year old Kavitha to look out for those warning signs, because Mm -hmm. if you don't nip them in the bud, then it can, then that's when it spirals. That's wonderful advice. That is really good advice. Um, So what I do when I close a show with guests is I always ask everyone, what is a cause or passion that you want amplified? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, So I would say two. One is um, absolutely... um, rape services in, uh, sexual assault services in, on campuses, um, I think is extremely important. I remember the rape counselor, um, the night that I was assaulted was the only person who could have gotten me through that. Um, and she was, in, she was the most empathetic and most warm person. I think that those people just do God's work. Um, along those lines though, um, mental health services, in the follow-up on campuses, which is not something that universities do a particularly good job of. So that's, that's one. And then two, I would say food insecurity because I, I love food. I eat a lot. Um, I eat really pretentious meals and, but also really like down home, like ethnic meals. And, um, 
And, and, you know, I, I live in a city that has probably, you know, the most diverse, like some of the most diverse food in the country. And I have, I'm lucky to be able to afford most of it and to have access to it. But I also live in a city where food deserts are a huge thing. Um, and I grew up in one of them. So those, those would probably be the, uh, the two issues or causes that I care about. That's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was really a really good conversation. And I already know that other listeners out there will find your experiences and what you shared helpful in knowing that they're not alone to, to what we talked about. I think the whole purpose here is so that no one is so that people feel less alone and that to, to see to see you come through a very difficult time and for you to share that here and find this a safe space. I can't thank you enough. Yeah. And thank you. Thank you so much for doing that. I think it is so important that people aren't alone. And even just having these conversations with people like you makes me feel less alone, even though I know I'm not like that's the purpose of of us being here. Um, and, and hopefully, you know, hopefully, hopefully some people this will resonate with some people. So I appreciate it so much, Megan. Thank you, Kavitha. Thanks so much for listening. All episodes can be found on Apple, Spotify, or any preferred podcast platform. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Meg Reyes underscore, and you can find Kavitha on Twitter at Kavitha Davidson. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Tell your friends, share on your IG story, tweet to the world, all that good stuff. Amplified is a Blue Wire production. Shout out to the wonderful women who helped make this happen. Production and editing were done by Laura Stickles and visuals were created by Alyssa Claren. If you or someone you know is having thoughts of suicide, please call the U.S. National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 or text the word HOME to 741-741. And if you or someone you know has experienced sexual assault and you don't know what to do, please call the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-HOPE. That's 1-800-656-HOPE.